0: This is the College Football Fix podcast from
1: USA Today Sports. Welcome back to another episode of the College Football Fix podcast presented by USA Today Sports. Man, we got a lot to talk about today with Paul Meyerberg. I'm Dan Walkin here. Paul, we got to get to the college football playoffs first rankings, which are just a joke of a process. We'll get to that. But first, I've got a question for you. One, have you ever been bitten by a monkey? And two, have you ever met a stripper nicknamed the Pole Assassin?
0: No and no. I've seen monkeys in the zoo. Um, never never seen a stripper before, Dan. Um, but I've seen monkeys in the zoo. Never been close enough to be bit by one. But um, we all remember the horrible, maybe we don't, but I remember very vividly, maybe like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that like story, maybe in Connecticut or New Jersey, the woman who owned a monkey, he went bananas and like, (laughs) and like attacked the woman. Is this ringing any bells? This was a very formative, like early, I feel like uh, not early, but maybe mid 2000s internet moment where this monkey went on a rampage. So anyway. Um, I'm scared of monkeys being uh, getting attacked by one. I'm also scared of strippers who are so uh, have such a a platform that they have a nickname for themselves. You combine those two, Dan, and we're going to talk about this. I think it's one of the great stories to ever happen in the history of college football.
1: It is without question the story of the year in college football, and I'm sure the most people listening are at least somewhat familiar with the way this thing went down on uh, Monday night, but. Just a recap: Jeff Banks, who's the special teams coach at Texas, uh, apparently is uh, a significant other of a young woman who uh, used to be an exotic dancer. No judgment. It's a very legitimate, fine career. Uh, apparently, part of her act was a monkey when she was uh, doing this dancing. Uh, that was apparently so good that she was nicknamed the Pole Assassin. She was on Jerry Springer. Uh, that's apparently where she got some of her notoriety. And over Halloween weekend at the Banks household, there was obviously some sort of you know party or Halloween deal, a haunted house of some sort, as she explained on deleted Twitter videos. And apparently they've got this cage for the monkey in the back, and there were some kids or one kid. You know, 10, 11 years old who um, you know, wanted to go see the monkey and maybe got a little too close, maybe he stuck his hand where it shouldn't have been, got bit. There was a rumor on the internet that the monkey's jaws had to be, you know, removed from from the child. And who knows like the veracity of all this? It's sort of in this weird space of a story that kind of feels like a rumor, and it's like, oh my god, this cannot be true. And then She's actually on Twitter defending herself so something happened which allows us to kind of get into it this way but um I guess the only thing I can deduce from this is that Texas is back now finally Texas is back now that we have a assistant coach's stripper girlfriend monkey story to talk about.
0: It yeah, has so many um, apostrophes and possessives in there it's the Texas special teams, coaches, significant, others, monkey. By the way, Dan, I learned this from Nova. If you want to approach a monkey, certainly a gorilla, like a silverback gorilla, or you come across one, this is for our listeners, this is this is free of charge. Um, you want to get down on one knee, lower yourself, basically debase yourself physically, and then lift up your hand with your, hand, your, your finger making an upside-down fist and lower your head It's a sign of, um, obedience. So necessarily, I I don't think this kid knew how to approach a monkey in the right way. not saying he deserved what happened, but like you said, what has occurred here, um, deserves a feature length movie, uh, 30 for 30. Um, at least some sort of deep oral history dive into the story. I just think it's spectacular. There's so much happening here. Um, it really, we talked about the OU, um, Student kids getting up top and spying on Lincoln Riley, and I was like, "Wow, this is the best thing to ever happen." This puts that story to shame. So, in the sense that Texas is doing better than Oklahoma um, on this podcast, yes, Texas is definitely, definitely back. Um, there's a lot to talk about with Jeff Banks. Like I don't, uh, there's a there's a lot going on behind the scenes with Jeff Banks, and it's, that you don't really expect from the special teams coach at a power five school. A lot of depth there, Dan. Lot
1: going on. Well, let me just say I've only had one sort of face to face interaction with a monkey that I remember. It was a few years ago. I was on vacation. I was actually in Morocco and I was going up to the mountains to do some uh, camping. And there's this place in I, I I can't even name exactly where it is, but it's like this sort of road stop as you go over the mountains, and it's this park, and basically there's just monkeys running wild everywhere. And everyone stops there, and they got people selling peanuts. And I have a video of it on my phone. And as this story was percolating, I was sort of going back through the pictures and the videos to remember it. And like you, you if you took a peanut, the monkey would take it right out of your hand. And the proficiency with which the monkey like opened the peanut and ate it was amazing to me. Cause like, I mean, they crack that thing and take the nuts out and eat it in like three seconds. It was phenomenal. Work by the monkey. Um, Yeah, you don't want to get too close because those things are a little, uh, you know, a little unpredictable. Uh, But uh, I understand the fascination, like the kid being fascinated by by that pet. um, And yet, you know, maybe just uh, lesson learned. As far as Jeff Banks, I mean, this is a guy, you know, kind of where we are in college football now special teams coaches can make a million dollars a year. And like, this is Jeff Banks. Jeff Banks is regarded. He's known across college football as one of the best recruiters out there. One of the best special teams coaches out there. He was at Alabama. It was a big deal when Sark got him to Texas. Uh, I I mean, I guess the story will like eventually go away or just sort of recede into the background. I don't know if it helps hurts or whatever, but um this is the lifestyle that your $1 million special teams coach is living. Monkeys in the backyard.
0: If I had a million dollars, Dan, I was making a million dollars a year. Yeah, I would have some sort of small-time petting zoo in the back.
1: Exotic animals? I have a
0: shark tank. I'd basically be a like a small-scale James Bond villain with the amount of just crap that I would get. just Just spend, spend, spend on all this wacky stuff. I'm not saying man-eating sharks, but I think it'd be awesome to have a hammerhead shark um, in a see-through tank, like an aquarium in a room in your house. So credit to Jeff Banks. I think he used that money wisely. He could have invested in some CDs or like gone to, you know, going to Prudential and given his dude hundred thousand bucks to work with. He didn't. Um, he didn't. And credit to you, Jeff Banks. Also, a million dollars. If he if he becomes a head coach somewhere in a place other than Austin where, you know, you got to really stretch your dollars or you got to, like, make your dollars count. Just imagine what he could do if he was making $3 million in Pullman.
1: Yeah. Uh, Jeff Banks has been mentioned as a candidate for the Washington State job. I'm not sure that this story particularly uh, helps him. Well, serious land. question. I think then. he was a Washington State alum. Serious
0: yeah. question. Like, we're, like, having fun, and this is a fun story, and it's fun to focus on fun things. But is this – could this legitimately – stop him from getting a power five head coaching job or even just a head coaching job legitimately. The fact that he, that this happened and that we're finding out.
1: Listen, I think the only head coaching job that Jeff banks is seriously considered for or would be seriously considered for is, is at Washington state where he is an alum played for Mike price, which is another uh, fairly hilarious circle to close on this. Given what happened to Mike price at Alabama, Uh, it's rolling baby. It's rolling. And, you know, I think if you're Washington State, what you want in your next coach is maybe not so quirky. Like they've had quirky. They've had maybe too much quirky with Mike Leach and then with Nick Rolovich. I think maybe the pendulum might swing back to a little more boring. This does not land in the boring category. So I'm not sure it like eliminates his candidacy, but I'm not sure it helps either. Good point. All right, let's uh, get to the playoff rankings. This was Tuesday night. I hate the playoff rankings. It offends me in many ways, just my entire sensibility about this process, because the college football playoff is designed to be a selection after all the games are done, after the conference championships have been won. And we have seen now through eight years of the playoff, like once you get to the end, We understand it. It all makes sense. There's not really any controversy. And yet what they do, because ESPN wants to draw a few more viewers on a Tuesday night, is they do this show and the rankings are fake and they don't really mean anything. And it gets everybody riled up. So what is everybody riled up about? Well, not Georgia at number one, because that was obvious. Alabama, number two, gets some people mad because Alabama did lose to Texas A&M. People are upset about Cincinnati at number six. There's a few more things that that people are upset about. Certainly, Mike Oresco, the commissioner of the AAC, is very mad that uh, Houston and SMU are not in the rankings, which hurts Cincinnati's prospects of potentially getting into the top four. I, I guess sort of the bottom line for me is I just don't care about any of this. I wrote a column basically just saying ignore it. But we can't ignore it because it dominates the conversation. So, what was your main takeaway? Did you have any like major problems with what the committee did?
0: No, I thought they would put Alabama two. Um, that's what I predicted on Tuesday morning. So, I don't have a problem with that. I thought they'd have Cincinnati four. I never thought Cincinnati would finish in the top four, but I thought it would be a representative way to, to, um, show the right amount of respect for a program that has been really good for three, four years in a row and, and you know, has two power five road wins, one at Notre Dame. So I, I thought they would put them four. Um, I really like that Oregon was ahead of Ohio State. We all know that's not going to stay, but it does say to me, or it tells me that Oregon at 12-1 and one is going to have a really good case to get in. So just early takeaways. I had nothing uh, – Cincinnati shouldn't be six to me, but like you said, like, in 2014 and 2015, I like, I've i kind of spent all my outrage on these playoff rankings, like in the first year or two. I don't really care anymore. Like you said, it's, it's ultimately meaningless. But we can say, Dan, I don't know if you agree, at least I think um, Cincinnati at six, no other AAC teams in there. It's obvious that, uh, as we probably all expected all along there's really no pathway for them to get in. If we're being realistic, obviously chaos would get them in, but if realistically Cincinnati really doesn't have a shot.
1: I've said this from the very beginning of the season, because we know how this process works. We know how the playoff was designed. It was never designed to give a Cincinnati or any team from outside the power five, the benefit of the doubt. I remember sitting in the meetings in California when they were Coming up with this playoff And we'd sit there and they'd come out The commissioners and we'd talk to them And we'd ask some questions about How it was all going to work And it was just obvious Like teams from The group of five were, were not going to get in It would take an extraordinary set of Circumstances it's not even necessarily About the quality of Cincinnati's team They have a good win over Notre Dame no question about it uh, I think Notre Dame is, is a good Team they're not a great team But it is also true that Cincinnati week to week has not been like knocking it out of the park on the eye test. They've looked fine. They've won some games. I mean, even if you talk to people within the AAC, people who are level headed and people who are not insanely biased. I don't hear some like great regard for Cincinnati. Like that, oh my God, this is like the most unbeatable team we've ever seen in this league. Not not the case. I mean, frankly, some of those UCF teams may have been better than than the Cincinnati team. They've been fine. They've been good. I don't have a big problem with them being ranked sixth, I, I, but it just is what it is. If there's a bunch of other chaos and teams losing, maybe they find a way to sneak in there, but it's unlikely. And that's the way the system was designed. It is working as it was designed to work.
0: Right. That's the point. It's not working. It's not like jerry-rigged and manufactured at this point. to keep Cincinnati out. It's the way it's always been. I think the pathway in that is, um, like, again, trying to be realistic and not saying Alabama is going to lose to New Mexico State or whatever. Georgia beats Alabama by 14 in the SEC championship. Yep. Alabama's out. Um, Ohio State loses again or loses to Wisconsin or Minnesota in the Big Ten Championship. Unlikely. Unlikely. Um, Then you're looking at Georgia, um, unbeaten Oklahoma, um, or uh, Georgia, Oregon, Oklahoma, and then maybe Cincinnati. I mean, then you're at least in position. It's not like the craziest thing, but it's just not overly realistic. And even at that point, Dan, like, I, I think we've found and we have enough history to say that when push comes to shove, um, Cincinnati's not going to have the resume that's going to really allow the committee to justify putting them in the top four or at least sell it or or put another way. They're going to have the resume that will allow the committee to sell them at five, six, seven. That's just the truth of it. And it's unfortunate, but they're not going to have any, like SMU might get into this top 25 in two weeks, but once they lose to Cincinnati, they're out. So that's not a top 25 win. Houston might be in there at 10 and two going to the conference title game when they lose, they're out. So they're going to have one power, Top 25 win when all is said and done. Oklahoma's gonna have three in the next month. It's just not it's not sustainable. It's not any kind of record that's gonna have you move up from six into the top four.
1: And by the way, you still got Michigan State. I mean, they they're unbeaten, they're number three. Uh, they they've still got everything to play for here. Even Michigan at number seven, very, very tough loss last week into Michigan State on a number of levels. But what happens if they do beat Ohio State and somehow, you know, either lose the division on a tie break or win the division? Like, they're still in the mix Uh, and probably, frankly, ahead of Cincinnati because they just have better wins. And um, I I don't necessarily know if that's fair or not, but I, I do think that that's kind of the way people look at it. Now, let's discuss Oklahoma for a second. There was a lot of hubbub on Twitter when they were revealed as the number eight team and a lot of praise for the committee because they're evaluating Oklahoma, not just based on the record, which is 8-0, but on the eye test, which has not been necessarily kind to Oklahoma on a week in and week out basis. But the way I look at it, like to me, Oklahoma still got a great chance to get in and frankly would pass a lot of these other teams. Because they've got Baylor coming up next week. They've got Oklahoma State coming up after that. And then they've got a big 12 championship game. They're going to be playing three straight really good teams. And also Iowa State in there, too. they got to beat them. Iowa State, that doesn't have as much luster as it did early in the season. But to me, they've still got opportunities. And if they get through all these games and they're undefeated, they're getting in the playoff, whether we like it or not.
0: Yeah, I thought there was something a little bit lazy about last night. And maybe then, like they did mention this last night, and I think that maybe it was something at least I overlooked. This is such a new group of committee members. Like there's the most turnover ever. I know Willingham is back after doing it before, but it's such a new group. It felt a little bit lazy um, to rely so heavily on head-to-head, um, as good as a, as much as it might make sense. A little bit lazy, maybe to um, uh, you know rely on the eyeball test in a place like Oklahoma, because Oklahoma. It's still nine and zero. They've got seven Power Five wins. I mean, seven Power Five wins. That's a legitimate number of wins. I know they haven't looked apart against Kansas. They struggled against Nebraska. I thought putting them at eight was a little bit was a little bit much. I mean, when I made my projection going in, and I thought they might be fifth or sixth, the head of Ohio State and the head of Oregon, because they have all those Power Five wins. Um, they've clearly been improved since Caleb Williams took over. So um, the important thing, like you said, is that they'll get in at thirteen and zero. I mean, they're in at thirteen and zero. Just Point blank, they're in, no doubt about it. I don't even care what happens elsewhere. If you're thirteen zero and a power five and your name is Oklahoma, you're getting into the top four. But I thought eight was a little bit of a push. Um, I don't. I just, you know, I, again, you can't complain because it'll all work out. But I had, I would have had them higher, personally.
1: Yeah, and on that note, I think it's pretty good news for Oregon that they're sitting there right now where they are because they. Have that loss to Stanford. There were some extenuating circumstances in that game, including Joe Moorhead not being there as the offensive coordinator to call the plays. He was sick uh, for that game and, and didn't play, and it might have affected what happened. You never really know. But that win over Ohio State and Columbus is very, very bankable for them. It's it's obviously very valuable. It has kept them ahead of Ohio State in the because of the head-to-head. And I think it sounds like, it seems like to me the committee has a lot of respect for Oregon. And if they continue to do what they're doing and win a very mediocre Pac 12, you know, if they get through the game against Oregon State, you know, if they get through the Pac 12 championship, I think, I think they're in pretty good shape.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't think they're going to stay ahead of Ohio State permanently because Ohio really? State. Yeah, really? I don't. Okay. I don't. Because I think Ohio State's got Michigan. Even if
1: so. they both go undefeated. You mean
0: if they both run the table? I'm not St- going head to head-to-head. Ohio State will have beaten yeah. Michigan State, Michigan, and then Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, right? Oregon. Correct. Oregon legitimately might have, might not have one top 25 win other than Ohio State. Like, certainly might not have won the rest of the way, depending who they play in the conference title game. Am I right? I mean, the, the South winner might not be in the top 25.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not going to be a great schedule with a lot of big wins coming down the stretch.
0: Yeah, so no I don't want to. I don't want to contradict myself from before. I still think Oregon gets in at twelve and one. I do because I think that Ohio State win as Ohio State stacks wins. I mean, obviously, it looks better and better. Um, I just don't know if they're going to stay ahead of Ohio State. I think Ohio State at the end is going to have a nice resume. Um, I think they made a good point. On, I think they have. A, they made a good point on the broadcast last night. I can't remember if it was McElroy, it might have been Reese Davis. Everyone has allowed one slip up. It's like when you do it twice that it becomes a trend. So I think this Stanford loss, like we've seen over and over again, um, other than the time Ohio State lost to Purdue, like you lose one game, it's survivable. And I think this is survivable for Oregon. Um, I guess like we all play this game about who gets left out. Let's say Alabama does lose. I don't like, and you're competing for the fourth spot. I don't know if 12-1 and Oregon gets in over 13-0 Oklahoma. I mean, that's a really good debate. But I think Oregon obviously is in tremendously good shape. Tremendously good shape, considering that we don't respect the Pac-12 too much. To be number four right now is a really, really good sign.
1: All right. Well, I'm sure we'll have more to talk about next week, depending on how much movement there is. But uh, we don't like these rankings, but they're there. We talk about them. We analyze them. We move on. Big news in the coaching world. Sunday night, Gary Patterson was essentially fired at TCU. They they termed it a mutual parting of ways, blah, 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 blah. But they offered Gary a chance to finish the season. He is not taking that. He is leaving. He is gone from TCU. Jerry Kill is the interim coach. And it's a shock to the system not that this is it for Gary Patterson because just being real about it, the trend lines have been poor the last few years this season. I think we even talked about it on the podcast very early on that we thought this might be a bounce back year for TCU. They had a lot coming back. They had plenty of opportunity to be in Big 12 championship contention. They have not. The loss to Kansas State was was pretty horrid. Um, the record going back the last couple of years years, it's, it's, you know, they're kind of a 500 or worse program. So it was probably time. You know, sometimes it just doesn't work anymore. It gets stale. But it's sad and it's a terrible commentary on just sort of where we are that that Gary Patterson, like the guy with a statue in front of the stadium, the guy who got them into the Big 12. I, I, I remember like my first interaction with Gary Patterson goes back to the beginning of my career when I was working at the Colorado Springs Gazette covering Air Force and TCU was a a new member of of the Mountain West, having literally just come in from Conference USA and they joined they they leapfrogged from the WAC to Conference USA to the Mountain West. And remember they came in and just ripped Air Force a new one. Like it was a they were on like a different level. And then the next several years, you saw TCU, they're they're beating Oklahoma, you know, they're winning conference championships. Then they sort of get to the level where they take on Boise and they start beating Boise and then they go to the Rose bowl. Right. And then they get into the big East and the big 12. And like, then they almost win national championship and just an incredible run for a coach who not, not just transformed a football program. He changed the entire school in some ways. Like TCU is a good private school with a good reputation, but People know TCU now because of what that football program did. And for it to just sort of end like this with a midseason firing and he's mad and he's probably going to try to coach again. And and you don't have the, the goodbye ceremony and and the flowers for everything. He's not like it's. It almost boggles the mind that this is how it ends.
0: Yeah. Um, Patterson's the only coach I've ever interviewed naked. He was. I mean, I had clothes Hello. on. I had, I had clothes on. He he was Nick. He was a post game. It's the end of an era for me personally. So it was very sad. Um, I think uh, he really changed the. He, he was a game changer, uh, not just from his defensive philosophy, but I think he altered the power structure in the state of Texas. Um, and he drew a lot of, uh, of of like just sway away from Austin and College Station. I think he really had an impact on what the Big Twelve looks like today. Um, clearly had an impact on what the, the entire Lone Star State looks like. Um, so, yeah, his impact is legendary. He's a Hall of Fame coach in my mind, um, you know. But we kind of, you, you kind of mentioned it. Uh, TCU has probably no worse than the fourth-best roster in the Big 12 and very likely the third-best, depending on how you feel about Oklahoma State and maybe about Baylor. Um, it's a very talented football team. Um, so I don't want to say someone has to take the blame, but there have been unmet expectations for about three years now. You would think Patterson, like you said, would be the one guy or one of the few guys who get a chance not necessarily to see it through to see if he can turn it around, but at least see things through to the end of the season. So that's a dis- that's a disappointment. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm it's unfortunate for him, disappointing for him, that he's got to just walk away on a Sunday night, and that's it. It's over. Um, but he will coach again then. Like, he will coach again. He may coach as soon as 2022, but I would bet um, a significant pile of money that he's coaching somewhere, period, in the, in the near future.
1: Yeah. So, so the whole thing is interesting because it felt to me at the end like Gary and and like personally, I really like Gary a lot. I mean, he's you and I and all the people in our business. If there is a, a college football coach who like if you could just sort of sit down with them across the table and just have a conversation about whatever, he's at the top of the list. Because, first of all, he's just interesting and he's got other things that he's interested in besides football, even though he is like the stereotype of the intense, you know, red ass football coach. He's also like super interested in other things. We, he and his wife would go to Africa all the time to do like, you know, photo safaris and things like that. And scuba diving. And he's a, you know, country music songs that he wrote. And like Gary's got a lot of stuff going on, really smart guy, but it did feel like, Even though he evolved on the field, you remember, you know, he had one bad year and then he went to the spread Trevon Boykin moved him from, I think Trevon Boykin was a receiver and made him a quarterback. And then they, and they put him in the spread and it was like magic. And, you know, they, they have, they were co-Big 12 champions and, and, you know, could have been in the playoff. They destroy Ole Miss in in the uh, Peach Bowl that year. So, He was flexible in terms of football stuff, but it felt like maybe he just didn't understand sort of the evolution of NIL, the transfer portal, how to talk to kids, um, the, you know, the, the activism, the, the racial reckoning that we went through last year. He was just sort of ham handed in, in dealing with and discussing a lot of these things and that maybe he had sort of lost his connection to the locker room. So I think if he is going to coach again like that's what he's going to have to deal with. This is a different generation of kids. And you know, I talk about this all the time with administrators, especially ones who are looking at coaches to hire and there's just a different model now. Like emotional intelligence is a huge part of the job. Understanding how to connect to to a, a Gen Z athlete. And I think that's where Gary sort of maybe lost his edge a little bit or maybe he just stayed too long. I don't know. But I, I just personally don't think any other coach in the country could have done what he did at TCU, given the, you know, where they started out conference-wise, facility-wise. He just had that chip on his shoulder. He had that drive. He had that, that thing that he was constantly trying to prove that they could do it there, and he did mostly until these last few years. I don't know if they're going to do any better, it seems like Sonny Dykes is the guy they they want to hire, and maybe they're going to be in this competition with Texas Tech to see who hires Sonny Dykes. Is that the answer? I don't know. But it's a good job now, and I think all the pressure's on that administration because you just fired the best coach in school history.
0: Yeah, I think you can make the kid I mean, there aren't that many jobs open right now. Who knows what opens? But it's clearly the third best opportunity open right now. Um sunny dice things is really interesting i don't i can't say that i have any any like legitimate insight into it or into his thinking but i do know that uh it's it's like complicated for a lot of reasons for him uh one being that i mean he's made smu's whole thing that we own dallas dfw is our backyard we're the metroplex team so you start going to tcu I don't think you're being disingenuous necessarily. It's not like SMU can't continue to brand themselves that way, but all of a sudden you're seeing the same recruits going into the same high schools, seeing the same high school coaches, making the same pitch, but about this other school who, by the way, happens to be SMU's big rival. I think that makes it a little bit interesting, not to mention that him and Gary Patterson are are close. And Patterson gave Sonny a a landing spot when he was fired at at Cal, and and he came over and, and worked as an analyst before getting the SMU job. So it's, that's complicated, not to mention the fact that Texas Tech offers the opportunity to, to continue a family legacy. So I don't know where he's going to choose, but he's going to have those two options. Um, I think the important thing that TCU can do um, when it comes to Patterson, find a way to honor this dude a little bit. I know they have a statue out there, but find a way to, to maintain a relationship. Like, I'd hate to see Gary Patterson stay away from TCU for five, seven, ten years and and you know, have some sort of rancor between the two of them. Unfortunately, you know, Gary, it's highly possible that there's going to be a grudge for a very long time. I think that's also, yeah, it
1: might take a while. Yeah. I think it's it might take a while. while to repair. Hey, so really good point about him
0: trying to adapt. Like I know he wants to coach still because this is what he is. It's what he does. He definitely yeah. going to try to, he's coach only
1: 61. Still.
0: Yeah. I think he's got, yeah. he's got miles left. Um, like if you're just going to try to look into the future I, the way it ended like you said the the uncertainty about whether he's able to connect with people or connect with these kids or how well that he has done at TCU um is this a group of 5 job that he's going to take you know is he going to get hired at I mean Texas State something like that or can he aim No,
1: I don't I don't think you go down to Texas State. I don't no, I think you have to wait for I mean honestly, like I think there's probably lower end power five jobs that would love to have Gary Patterson if if and when they come open. So we'll just have to kind of see where the where the coaching carousel trickle down comes after you know, after USC and, and LSU figure out what they're gonna do. Um wanted to mention it's been a weird week with coaches talking about recruiting and how they recruit. First of all, Dan Mullen Saturday after they get blown out by Georgia, and then again, it is typical Monday presser. This conversation around the Florida fan base has been about Dan Mullen's recruiting. Now, I think this narrative is a little bit overblown because, I mean, you look at Florida's recruiting classes under Mullen in the last few years, like they're top 10 classes, right? They're just not recruiting as well as, as Georgia. Hardly anybody is. In fact, the only school that's really even in in that class would be Alabama. So. I I don't know if that's totally fair that that Mullen is is not into recruiting or not invested in it. But I will say this when the whole conversation is about the talent deficit and the recruiting deficit, you can't avoid the conversation. If you're the head coach, you can't sort of brush it off or get defensive about it. Dan is so defensive about this that he shut it, tried to shut it down. I'm not talking about recruiting during the season you can find a dozen examples where he's talked about recruiting during the season after wins and what it means when they win. And you just have to be smart enough to know when to address your fan base and how to talk to your fan base. On the other end of that spectrum is Jimmy Lake from Washington. And it's been a bad year on many, many levels for Jimmy Lake at Washington. Frankly, I just am not seeing anything positive coming out of there, but he is asked about, uh the recruiting battles with Oregon. Washington is playing Oregon this weekend. And this is his quote: that is way more pumped up than it is. Our battles are really the schools that we go against have academic prowess. Like the University of Washington, Notre Dame, Stanford, USC. We go with a lot of battles toe-to-toe all the way to the end with those schools. So I think that's made up and pumped up in your world. In our world. We battle more academically prowess teams. <laughs>
0: um, hey, do you have um, do you have the response from Oregon's president in front of you from Michael Schill?
1: I will. Uh, yes, I mean I, I can find it in a second. But uh, which of those two do you think is the worst response oh, to recruiting questions?
0: It's it's Jimmy Lake by a thousand miles. Okay, Dan Mullen made us stupid. Like. Th- th- I don't understand this part of the like communications inside Athletic Department's job. Okay. A, they never get back to emails and all that stuff or phone calls. That's a different story. It seems to me like your job as a communications expert, whether you're working at Microsoft or in Gainesville or you work at, you know, Publix, you gotta like prepare your dude to answer any question that he could get in that public setting. Like how are you letting yes. Dan Mullen go up into that table? and letting him even begin that question before you dive across the podium, knock the microphone off, or like flip the the light switch and turn the power off. You can't answer that question in that way. It's so dumb. It's so self-defeating. It doesn't make any – all you have to say, Dan, is we recruit every day. Recruiting is a lifeblood of our program. Every day we go out looking for people who want to be Gators. We want people in this program who want to be great. We want to build a roster that can win a national championship. Anything less than that is not – uh, sufficient. And that's why we recruit every day, all day, all year long. It's not that difficult. What Dan said was really, really stupid, but what Jimmy Lake said is colossally dumb, just colossally dumb. And it's also wrong. Um, if one, it's just wrong. The answer to that question is, you know, we feel like we have a lot to sell here at UW. We're in one of the great cities in the country, one of the biggest cities in the world. Um, we feel like with our academic background, with what we can offer in terms of NIL opportunities, that we're a place that really can't be beat for prospects on the West Coast. Why would he say that? Like, what what was he thinking saying that? I mean, that's just stupid. That's about as stupid as, like, running the same offense they've been running for four years. I mean, it like, just pure idiocy. I don't know what he was thinking.
1: Well, here's Oregon President Michael Schill uh, in response. And, of course, you love when the college presidents get in on the – Smack talk quote. You is a wonderful school with a great football history. I have great respect and affection for its president, its academic and football program, and its former exceptional football coach, coach Peterson. I look forward to our team meeting. theirs on the gridiron this Saturday. Talk about a knife to the back. <laughs>
0: That's an all timer to me. That's an all timer. I know like you got to see you also, um, I saw it in the Oregonian, right? And like it had his bio headshot, like kind of on that screen, or at least it was shared that way. You got to look at his picture while you read it. That's an all-time thing <laughs> right there. It's just fantastic. So I love that quote. Jimmy Lake deserved that and more. And you know what he's also going to get? I have a feeling he's going to get like a 21-point loss on Saturday. Not because of what he said, but maybe because they were. Oh, recruiting it might be with, more than that. Yeah. Maybe it's because they were recruiting against. Similarly, academically focused schools instead of recruiting against the best of the best. That might explain why they're going to get their asses beat.
1: Yeah. No, number one, you never win in this sport talking down about your opponent's academic profile, right? <laughs> Who freaking cares? Yeah. Okay. Who cares? Number two, if you are the head coach at the University of Washington, why do you think that your recruiting competition is Notre Dame and Stanford? Like, if that is what you believe, then you're the wrong person for the job. Okay? Your job as the head coach of Washington should be to get the best players in Seattle, in the state of Washington. You go into California. You you maybe go to Texas. You, you got to go all over the country. But I'm sorry, but if you're recruiting like the type of guys – who are likely to go to Notre Dame and, and Stanford? You're not going to get many of those guys at Washington. Sorry, it's just not. That's not how it works. Number three, if you really want to do the whole academic profile thing, Washington isn't even the top-rated public school in their own conference. You know, obviously you've got Stanford there; they're private, but you've got Cal Berkeley. Like everyone in UCLA. All, who, you know, not that I not that I believe in these recruiting rankings. Okay. I think all all that's a bunch of BS, but yeah, UCLA and Cal are ranked higher consistently than, than University of Washington, so don't even go there. Third, if you are sitting here and telling me that you're not recruiting against Oregon, well, then what you're telling me is that you're not going to have better players than Oregon, because Oregon's got good players. Why wouldn't you want to recruit the types of guys Oregon's recruiting? None of this makes sense. It's all stupid. It's all Jimmy Lake deflecting about how bad of a job he's doing as the coach at Washington. And honestly, I think he's on the fast track to getting booted out of there because he just does not seem to me like the right guy for the job.
0: Yeah, this is a telling statement about a guy who probably doesn't have a great grasp on the daily day-to-day battles that Washington needs to win. One thing Chris Peterson did, and has always done, Um, they were very meticulous and very picky about who they recruited. Um, Jimmy Lake is not Chris Peterson. He's a really good football coach. Like, we're dismissing him. He's reached the pinnacle of his sport. Like, I don't want to say that he's not going to have a career here or he may not get another head coaching job down the line, but you can't do it like Chris Peterson because there's only one Chris Peterson, whether you worked under him or not. I think Washington needs to broaden their horizons a little bit. And, yeah, like, Arizona State doesn't. Why don't you offer every do that Oregon offers and go to battle? I mean – Make it happen. But you're not gonna win by competing against Notre Dame and Stanford, not just because you're recruiting a different type of athlete maybe than Oregon is, but you're just not gonna win those recruiting battles. Because you're not gonna win, hey, come get your degree here over Stanford, and you're not gonna win, hey, go to the NFL over Notre Dame. So I just I don't know seems to me like this was not a well thought out moment. I hope he has to regret about it. Because I know that Oregon might not be as smart a school as you dub, but they can count like up to forty nine by seven. Um, And I have a feeling that they're going to end up doing that against them on Saturday.
1: And listen, if I'm the head coach at University of Washington, I feel I would feel like I've got a lot to sell. I mean, Washington is an awesome place. Seattle is a one of the coolest cities in, in the country. And yeah, not everybody may want to go to the Pacific Northwest. And yeah, it rains a little bit. But like to me, that's a. Unbelievable campus in one of the best cities in the country. Tons of opportunity there. Like, stop it with we are not recruiting guys that Oregon's recruiting. That is a bunch of bull. So, Jimmy Lake, uh, get get your act together because, uh, I mean, that's as bad as it gets.
0: I agree, Dan. 100%.
1: All right. Ready to talk about this week's games? Let's do it. All right. Um Unfortunately, we don't have the most exciting schedule. Is that fair to say?
0: I think there are a lot of good games. There are some good games. Certainly in the SEC there's a game or two worth mentioning. But I thought last week was uh, last week was a really good week. A really good and also I oh, yeah. thought last week was like planned out. Not that it was planned out, but it was like scheduled out well from noon until night. I thought there were good games that came off that I mean it just really had my attention all day. Um this is November. I feel like there are a lot of games that matter, but no, there isn't that like Michigan-Michigan State matchup well, that pops off the screen.
1: I mean, this is supposed to be the week that LSU-Alabama is center stage. In In a typical year, that's what would happen. This year, CBS didn't even bother to pick it up. CBS passed on uh, this game for the first time in a very, very long time. It's on ESPN. It's a night game. You know... LSU 4-4, four and four, everyone expects Alabama to roll. They're 28-and-a-half-point favorites. Oh. That might be a little much for my blood. But, um, yeah, it, it is not even the marquee game in the SEC. The marquee game in the SEC this week, uh, is, at least as far as I'm concerned, would be Auburn at Texas A&M, uh, which, you know, give Auburn some credit. Uh, they, they've they've done well, you know, and, and they're a team that uh, – they're in the top fifteen. They they beat Ole Miss last weekend. They they've hung in there. You know they they obviously are not in the category of of a Georgia. You know they 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 had the loss at Penn State, which was a very competitive game. But you know they they won at LSU. They've beaten Arkansas. They've beaten Ole Miss. Um, they found ways, and I actually think this is going to be a really intriguing game uh, because A uh, and M. You know, we have not really paid a lot of attention to them since the Alabama win. They have not had—I mean, they've only played Missouri and South Carolina. But they are getting it together at the right time. Auburn's gotten it together at the right time. I think this is a good one.
0: Yeah, I think so too. I'm in, I'm, I'm impressed by Auburn. I really am. I, I did not think that they were going to. Yeah. And look, they could finish seven and five. The schedule is brutal, just to be honest. But I thought this was a six or seven win team in the regular season. I just didn't like the makeup of the roster. I didn't know what to expect from Harson. So I've been impressed by them and also by Bo Nix. I mean, I thought he came onto campus with way too much hype. And that's not a a knock against him. There was just too much surrounding him. Um, The expectations were too high. But he's starting to put it together. Um, He's a little bit of a a wild card, which I like. Um, But you saw against Ole Miss, I mean, he outplayed Matt Corral by miles. So when he's on, he's a difference maker for Auburn. Um, This is a New Year's Six game to me. I mean, technically, both of these teams could win the West. I mean, it's technically true. I mean, Auburn could run the table, beat Alabama, win the West. A M and could win out, and Alabama loses to whomever, and they win the West. But to me, this is a New Year's Six game, so there's a lot of implications um, and uh, obviously a lot of meaning in terms of how the top 15 or so shakes out of the playoff. But I expect this one to get um, to be unpredictable and to be fun. Um, so I don't blame CBS for taking it. I think this could get really high scoring. and I, and I think that uh, I'm going to take a and m, but Auburn's hard to peg down. I have no doubt that they could win this game.
1: Yeah, I think I would take a and m as well. You know, there there's maybe something to playing a bunch of emotional games in a row and and this might be the week that Auburn lets down just a tad. and a and think is going to be pretty well. Uh, prepared to play that game emotionally. They they've this is a good week for them to sort of be up after a couple easy wins. Staying in the SEC, Mississippi State at Arkansas. Obviously, the committee's got a lot of respect for Mississippi State. What were they? Sixteen something like
0: 17,
1: that. Yeah, that's great. Um, Seventeen. So you know, especially for a team that, that's got a loss to Memphis. Um, you know they <laughs> they they have got a barely escaped Louisiana tech in the opener. They, they lost at home to LSU, but, but they've got good wins. They won at AM. They, um, you know, they, they just destroyed Kentucky last week. They're they, in some ways it's, it's, it's typical of the Mike Leach experience where you just don't know what you're going to get from week to week. You're going to have bad losses, but you're going to have good wins. Uh, their offense does seem to be coming around though.
0: Yeah, they are, um, like, we don't want to keep talking about the rankings, but if you put Wisconsin ahead of Iowa, you kind of had to put Mississippi State ahead of Kentucky. Besides, I mean, just like even more so in Wisconsin, like you said, they've got good wins. Um, I just don't think they're that good. I, you know what I mean? I just don't think they're that good. I just don't. Um, so, you know, I just don't know what to make of them from, from week to week. I, I'm not in love with this team. I think Will Rogers has played really well. I mean, last week he completed like 90-something percent of his throws. He's got an arm talent. And Mike Leach can always dial up, you know, 40 points when they've been given Saturday. But I'm just not in love with this team, Dan. I just don't know really what to make of them. I just don't view them as a really strong contender in the SEC.
1: One game I'm really going to be keeping an eye on is Liberty at Ole Miss. Hugh Freeze going back to Oxford. This game was on the schedule already when Freeze took the job at Liberty. Um, I mean, just given the way that Hugh Freeze left uh, or was fired from Ole Miss – It'll be interesting to see what kind of response they they give him in Oxford. I I have no idea what to expect.
0: Yeah, what do you I mean, honestly, I don't think they can boo him. They're not gonna boo Hugh Freeze, right?
1: I mean, look, they had some good years, but he is pretty responsible for that program going in a tailspin until Lane got there. So I I don't know. I it's hard for me to see him being a beloved figure among the Ole Miss fan base.
0: No, definitely not. And he's not going to get like a parade, but I just, I don't know if he's going to get booed. That's a great question though. That's a great, I'm, I'm interested in that. We'll see if that comes up on the broadcast. Interesting to see what kind of reception he gets. Um,
1: we can talk. But he's been just, slightly disappointing. I think so too. Look, yeah. they,
0: they're, they're seven and two, but they've got bad losses and they don't really have any good wins. That's a, that's a measure of the schedule. And that's unfortunate. But, um, we, you spoke about Auburn getting like just feeling down emotionally heading into this week. You nailed it on Ole Miss last week. I just thought they were flat. Yeah. So what you're seeing from Ole Miss is a little bit returned to to mean. Certainly for Matt Corral, you can kind of kiss those Heisman hopes goodbye at this point. He's been he's been pretty average for four or five games in a row. But this is um it's kind of a get right game for Ole Miss. You know, they're obviously much more talented than Liberty. And I think Lane Kiffin does not like the idea of losing to Hugh Freeze. So I think they're gonna come out fired up. Um so they're gonna roll. But to me, that's not as interesting as Hugh Freeze on the sideline. I'd like to see how this goes.
1: Michigan State has got a uh, tricky one at Purdue. Purdue's not bad, 5-3. and three. Purdue has been a giant killer in the past, an upset specialist type of team in the past. Michigan State, I mean – Mel Tucker, they just keep doing it. You know, they, they got outplayed for long stretches of that game against Michigan, but they just figured things out as the game went along. I mean, Kenneth Walker, like honestly, I had no idea who he was coming into the season. Why would I? Like, he had been sort of a okay player at Wake Forest, goes into the transfer portal, and all of a sudden, I mean, he's just a an absolute beast right now running the football there's something about michigan state that that makes you feel like maybe they're not quite as good as as where they are right now but the results speak for themselves i mean they are just a tough physically and mentally uh team that you you really got to beat you've really got to beat and i would love it if they are 10 and 0 going into ohio state that would be an awesome Spectacle and a great game to to watch on November twentieth, but um, this is one where they better you know have have full attention on Purdue because Purdue can jump up and bite you.
0: Yeah, they need to be focused. Um, I don't think Purdue is necessarily that great, but yeah, they have a track record of of, of winning these sorts of games. Uh, one yeah. thing that you got to say about Michigan State is, like you said, I mean, I like we were writing about Michigan, Michigan State. I had written Michigan wins at some point around like 245. I just assumed they were going to win. They were in control of the game. Um, so there's a mental toughness to Michigan State that obviously we can't overstate or, or undervalue at all. So um, this smells and reads like a trap game. But as you've seen, like second half against Nebraska, somehow winning that game, uh, second half against Indiana when things were really sluggish. Um, they find ways to win games and stay on top of things mentally. So I don't think they're going to slip up against Purdue um, from a mental perspective, but like, I just feel like Michigan state like could lose any game at any time, not because they come out flat, but just because look, they're outperforming. They're outperforming at eight. And no, they shouldn't be eight. No, just from a talent uh, experience, uh, you know, tenure for Tucker, just year two, first one, of pandemic year. They're outperforming and outkicking their coverage at eight zero. Part of me feels like they're due to take the loss before Ohio State, just because I just don't know how this team can be ten yeah, zero. Um... You know, so um, let's just say this: like everyone thought, Michigan State was not going to be that good, right? They were picked last in the East going into the year, so it's not like you know I was the only person to think that they were going to be shitty. I did think they were not going to be good, you know, and they are doing a lot better than I thought. But they're going to lose at some point. It could be before Ohio State you know, just from what I've seen with my own two lives.
1: Yeah, it's hard to sort of live on the edge like they have every single week. And at some point, you know, you, the the ball just doesn't bounce your way. And that may be coming for them. Uh, it'll be an interesting game, though. L- let's move over to the ACC really quick. Not that the ACC right now is dominating our uh, thoughts, but I do think there are a couple interesting matchups. You've got Wake Forest, uh, who's sitting there at 8-0, you know, I don't think they can do enough to get into the playoff. Now, it look, if they end up undefeated, it'll be interesting to see kind of how, how they fit into the mix. But they just don't have enough good wins. They go to North Carolina. They're only a two and a half point favorite. I mean, that just sort of sort of shows you the state of play. Now, this is not a conference game, I don't believe. I believe this no. is a non-conference game. Yes.
0: Right. Yeah, it's, it's a, non-conference a non-conference game. game. Don't, we don't even can't even explain it, but it's a non-conference slash conference game.
1: Well, it all goes back to when the ACC expanded and, you know, sort of the traditional rivals were playing each other less frequently and they decided they wanted to play each other more often. And so they scheduled a non-conference series. It's, It's bizarre. But yeah, I mean, like, I think this will be a good opportunity for people to see what Wake Forest is all about. It's an ABC game, which they have not had a lot of national exposure yet.
0: Yeah, I I think they probably would rather be playing NC Central on Saturday than UNC, (laughs) you know what I mean, just to be honest at this point. um, I think a lot of people are going to pick UNC to win this game. I get that. Well. You know, like UNC always, always. I mean, their
1: defense is so bad. Their defense is so bad. (laughs)
0: bad. It's awful. Nonetheless, there's still this feeling, I think it lingers from August. They're like, well, UNC is still a top 10 team. Like, we're just waiting for this top 10 team to show up. So it's like, you know, kind of a trendy pick for UNC. Like you said. UNC's defense, um, and just in terms of consistency, tackling uh, schematically, it's just a disaster. And Wake Forest is as good as any team in the country all season in quick plays, quick drives, explosive plays, you know, chunk plays. So it doesn't seem like a great matchup for UNC. Um, I'm going to take Wake to win this game and keep this thing rolling, but I do get like kind of the hesitancy. Regardless of what you feel about Dave Clawson or the program, there are still a lot of people who think Wake is Wake. And haven't seen this team play. I think this is not like the eighth best team in the country, but certainly it's one of the better teams in the country. And and in a weird and odd year for the ACC, um, just don't be surprised that they're 12-1 or something like that. And obviously in a New Year's Six Bowl.
1: Another uh, line that sort of jumps out from the ACC, NC State has got to go play in Tallahassee this weekend. They're only a a two-and-a-half-point favorite it seems like Florida State, even though they're just three and five, they're they're kind of turning the corner a little bit. I mean, Mike Norvell's gotten them to play pretty well. They they had the win over uh North Carolina a couple weeks ago. They did what they were supposed to do against UMass. And then honestly, last weekend, you know, they were right there against Clemson. It ended up 30 to 20, but they had the ball late with a chance to to go win the game, and they they just couldn't get anything going offensively. Uh, I did see that uh, right before we started recording the podcast that that Chuba Purdy, who was the highly touted freshman quarterback recruit uh, that they got last year, is reportedly going in the transfer portal. You know, I I don't know about what that means exactly. He wasn't playing, but you know, it seems like maybe the Mike Norvell thing is starting to take hold a little bit. Uh, they, I thought they they gave a very good accounting of themselves. I think Florida State fans are, are are much more fired up for the future than they, they've been at any time the last year. And I would say NC State better be very, very careful in this one.
0: Yeah, I think a lot has changed since Jacksonville State. I think there's a lot more positivity around the program. Having said that, I thought the Clemson-FSU game was enormously depressing. Um, it really just watched the game. <laughs> it was me, not a great – It football. made me so depressed. It's like, it's like when, um, you know, like some guy's son – is all of a sudden a college recruit, and you're like, "Holy cow, I am an old, old bag of bones." This game made me like nostalgic for like 2013, 14, when these games were outstanding. All of a sudden, it's like a meaningless game with with a, with a bunch of average teams. But um, yeah, I think Florida State can definitely, definitely, definitely win this game. I think if they do win this game, it's uh, just another step forward for the program. My big concern at this point, um. Knowing what we know about Norvell and his track record, I want to see more on offense. Like they've got to start stepping up on that side of the ball. I want to see more explosiveness, you know, and I think that's missing at this point. But I don't think you can question right now, um, like a lot of people did after Jacksonville State, they're playing with effort. Um, so, an effort and execution meets talent, which they'll have to add in terms of recruiting. I think that's a great combination. So, I feel better about things like a lot of Seminoles do um, than I did maybe two months ago, easily more than two months ago.
1: All right, any other games you got your eye on before we wrap it up?
0: That's it, Dan. Good week in terms of getting a chance to eyeball some teams that are uh, in the playoff mix or in the title mix that maybe you haven't had a chance to check out just yet.
1: All right, sounds good. Well, that'll do it for this week's College Football Fix podcast presented by USA Today Sports. Uh, Certainly like and subscribe to our podcast on whatever app you use to listen. Uh, Subscribe to USA Today Sports Plus. Uh, to get all of your sports news right to your computer or your device. And we'll talk to you next week. I'm sure there's going to be plenty to talk about in college football. As we learned over the last few days, there always is. Have a great week, everybody. The College Football Fix Podcast. <laughs> With Paul Meyerberg and Dan Wolken. This is the College Football Fix Podcast from USA Today Sports.